You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. All right, we're doing it, Bracken, and I have I have been looking forward to this conversation. I would like to preface this with Bracken and I have not chatted even for a second since his ultra, so I have no idea how it went or what happened. Bracken, how'd it go? I haven't talked with anyone. Oh. We got home that night, and I spent time with family after the race, and then we drove nine hours back home, and I was in the car with my dad, so I wasn't on the phone, and then I got home, and I was with the kids and Lisa, so... This this Monday morning here is the the first conversation about the race. Well, it went well. I I'm really happy with it. I thought it went as well as it could have. Really? Yeah. It's pretty good considering um you're not far into your comeback. Yeah, and and really for Ross it it went I think as well as it could have. He kind of got the ultra experience without any of the super lows. Like he didn't vomit, he didn't have GI issues, he didn't cramp but he got to some low points physically and he made it through the other side and was, was running well at the end of the race. My concern for you was this, is that when I run with somebody slower than me and it's a long, slow plod, sometimes it sucks the life out of your soul and your legs when you're like not working as hard as you want to and you're being held back. And my concern was that it was going to be harder for you than initially thought because of that factor. Did you experience that at all? I had none of that. Really? No, I just had a, I was, I had fun the whole time. It was enjoyable every second of the race. When did Ross hit his first lows? Uh, two hours. And what were those like? Uh, well, it started because we were, we were engaged in a competition. And so we knew we were playing the long game, but people were starting to come back to us. We had gone out like high end of sustainable. Oh. And some people had gone out low end of unsustainable, (laughs) you know? And so, and so we were probably in, they had a six hour, a 12 hour and a 24 hour. And I think there were 46 people in the six hour 45 or something. And so we went out in probably ninth and 10th place for the first hour. Okay. And then by the end of hour two, I think we were up to like fifth place. And then at two and a half, I think we caught second place and he was starting to get to that point where I can't run each lap anymore at this pace. Mm, he got so caught he up. Blown up, but the, the, the pace was no longer sustainable. And so we had moved up, we'd moved up, we'd moved up. And then it was a holding pattern for a while. And then it got really confusing because there was no delineation on course. You didn't have like a, a colored band for which race you were. So it was hard to tell where people were mm. and if they changed clothing throughout because you, you have a pit stop every 1.1 miles. And so people could pit at any time. You might pass them during pit or not pass them, or they might swap shirts or shorts or shoes. And so it was kind of hard to keep track of people. Uh, but but eventually, so that was the start of it. And then by mile four, uh, he couldn't he couldn't run downhills anymore. Hour four. Four and a half. Yeah, sorry. Hour, about four and a half. Uh, because it had rained for two days prior to this race. And they're all dirt trails. Hmm. And the average uphill on one of them is about 30%. And it hits 50 at one point on a couple points of the uphill. And then you get the same thing down. And so 30, 35, a couple 50% sections um, with two days of rain on mud and clay, it, you couldn't, the, the descents were exactly what you'd expect. And so you were always really rigid going down, like really tense and clenched, trying to not wipe out like there were times you had to just veer off into the trees because you couldn't turn on the mud Mm. and after a while that took a toll and and he couldn't descend anymore people people that haven't done an ultra or spent more than let's say three hours on feet don't realize that when you have a lot of vert and descending that at some point we all talk about climbing being hard and how it's so much work but you look forward to the climbs and you dread the descents because Mm -hmm. there's so much muscle damage that it's painful to go downhill And it sounds like that is exactly what he started to experience. Yeah. 
And it was interesting because he got to that real low point, like mentally and physically, when you realize I can't run down these hills. And I would say downhills are his greatest strength right now. Mm. You know, he's a former ball sport athlete. He's a he's a four foot runner. He can he can he's springy agile and he can get downhills. And so the first couple of laps, we were the fastest descenders, I think. And and when when he lost that, it was tough on him. But by the end of the race, he was running his flats faster than he, he was running in the middle of the race. He just couldn't descend anymore. So he got it back together, but his legs had left for the descents. So so the people want to know, we put out a little mini competition as far yeah. as distance goes and how far you would go. Are you looking at it exactly right now? I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to pull up Strava right now as you're asking this. All right. I didn't see it on Strava. I just uploaded it while I was pooping right before this episode. <laughs> you got to get work done in there. We call that the office when you sit in there for a long time. The post-ultra poops are hitting me. All right. Yeah, the post I don't go to the bathroom very much the day after a race and then two days af- after an ultra, like a multi-hour, but then two days after train leaves the station. I'm, I'm sure all the listeners were super curious about your bowel habits. Listen, this is a running podcast. This is something we deal with. It is true. All right. So what is the final mileage, Bracken? I had 23.04 miles. 23.04. I have no idea who is the closest to that. Me either. And Ross's said 23.8. And the race was won in 27 miles. Wow. And what was the elevation total gain for that effort? Um, yeah, w- winner had 27.02. So he made it four more miles than us in six hours. That's great. Uh, we, we, I had 7,400 feet of, of vert. That's a lot of vert in that amount of span. It was a lot of descending on pure slick terror mud. I saw your Instagram stories from the course walkthrough the day before, and you had rivers running down the trail, basically. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really wet. <laughs> and so and that was at uh, 3 p.m. on Friday and it had another couple hours to keep saturating. And the the 24 hour race started at like 6 or 8 p.m. or a.m. And then the 12 hour race started two hours later and we started two hours after that. So they had been on course for four hours already churning it up by the time we touched our first descent. Mm, yeah, a sloppy. So it, it was it was interesting because. His goal was to get 26 miles minimum, and we thought 28 to 30 was our stretch goal based off our simulator we'd done. But the thing is, in the simulator, he was able to roll the downhills the whole time, and he was struggling on the ups by the end because of how hard he was running the down. And in this one, we didn't roll a single downhill, and it just, you know, every lap probably took an extra minute of just downhill than what we anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so that that's just starts adding up. And so we thought the race would be one in 30 to 33 miles. And it was one in 27. It was just hard to get any distance. And we're going to get into some specifics to a little point I'm going to make. But if you don't train that grade of descent or mm-hmm. climbing, especially the descending that's super steep like that, because you guys worked more gradual hills. That's all you had access to. No, we, we got steep. We had one steep hill. Oh, you and we did. used it a lot. Yeah. We just didn't have muddy. It was always good footing. Okay. Well, that that grade on descent and practicing that beforehand and getting your body acclimated to that is super important. One more thing I want to ask you about the race mm-hmm. is any big takeaways for you or Ross now that it's all done? You know, I haven't really talked to them afterwards. I We had a few texts just to see how his body's doing, but I kind of just given him that, that time away to absorb his race. My takeaway was that a couple things. First is that I, it hit me. It was the first time I've ever done something submaximal mm-hmm. in a competition. And it's really fun. It's a totally different experience. Yeah. I used to wonder how people would run multiple ultras in a month or, you know, back-to-back race weekends. And mm-hmm. I realized if you're not trashing yourself, like if you're not emptying the tank to the point where you're not sure if you can, if you're going to be able to maintain, then your body can really regenerate well. And I've never done that before in my life. You know, even those hundred mile bikes we did, you know, those five, six, Mm -hmm. five hour days, I thrashed myself on it. Uh, I've never gone sub-maximal in a competition ever. So it was really fun. Uh, Second, it showed that a lot of the strengthening I've done in rehab has been really good for me because I don't have any issues. You sore at all? A little bit, but I am less sore after this than I was after our first 60 minute hill session, uh, like nine weeks ago. That does perspective for me right there. I went. I could do it again today if I had to. I went for my first uh, eight mile run this weekend. I saw that. And I ran in something that wasn't pillows, aka I didn't wear my hokas for once. I saw you wore your max. 
Oh, aren't you, stalker? And I am so sore from the knee down, my calf, my Achilles. It's incredible from a 53-minute run. So yeah. I'm still back in those stages. Well, good, man. You're in one piece. I still would like to talk to Ross. I don't know if he's up for coming on the podcast, but... I think this week we'll have him on. He's up for it. I talked to him. He is. I'd love to have his yeah. perspective. Also, listeners, 90% of you were wrong about something, and that is <laughs> that I'm really freaking good at badminton. All right. We're both offended. <laughs> we were All both right? offended. That poll, as we were watching it, it was overwhelmingly, they were guessing me. Uh-huh. And it was offensive to you because everyone's like, oh, this is athleticism. That's all bracket. And they, they forget that you were like all conference, all state soccer player. I'm an athlete. Soccer in college. 100%. Yeah. It's funny. And <laughs> the, the shot at me was that I'm dumb. <laughs> it's like, I got called up on stage with the brainiacs and me. It's like, oh, that's Bracken. So like Lisa's like, I'm almost offended that people don't think you're smart. And I'm offended for Kirk that they don't think he's an athlete. I know there was like so many levels. So on, we're, we're uh, stepping up our, our Instagram game, guys. If you notice, we're putting out a little more content for you. And Sunday's like a fun fact Sunday about one of us. We're going to keep you guessing from week to week. And the fact was I won the physical education award at my high school senior awards banquet. And they called up all the all the best of subjects. So math, science, you know, language arts, everything. And I was standing up there with a bunch of uh, smart kids and me. And they called us all up and didn't tell us why we were up there. They didn't announce what it was about. And I was looking around like, what? The, did they mess something up? I couldn't figure it out. And then I was the last one they had gotten to. And I didn't even know the physical education award was a thing. Um, and yeah, I went undefeated in badminton. I went 62-0. and 0 uh crushed everybody multiple times i'm i'm nimble like a cat you should see me move laterally bracken so all you folks that thought bracken was the badminton champion you're wrong idiots i coasted through badminton in high school i didn't put any effort forward oh i ran around with like scabby elbows and knees from court burn oh yeah now, pickleball we got after it but with badminton i was in a class that people didn't really care. And I wasn't about making like making people hate me for being the one person <laughs> sprinting over the course. So I thought, nah, I'll save it for pickleball. Everybody went after it in this thing. And you know, I feel bad about this. Then we'll get into our subject of the day. But the week of the senior awards banquet was also our sectional track meet. It was the end of my senior year. We were about to wrap up. And we had, to, we had a golfing unit is what we wrapped up with in senior gym. We did all the fun things, bowling, golf, we did all that stuff. And I had, we had our big end of year, 18 holes of golf for gym. And we had to walk the course and it was the day of my sectional track meet. And I was, so I went to my gym teacher and I was like, hey, I have like the biggest race of my year and we have to go walk 18 holes. And I went to her the day before and put up a big stink about it. Like, you have to understand. And I fought and we got in an argument about it. And she said, well, I will fail you if you don't come. And yet it was the gym teachers who voted on the physical education award. And I had won it literally two days after putting up a huge stink about not wanting to go walk 18 holes the day of my sectional meet. You understand the predicament, though, don't you? Well, it's weird that she said she'd fail you for... She said, you've got... Kirk, I, she said, you've got to... You have to show up. You don't... Like, this is the... These are the rules. I get it. But no. There are... There's a powerhouse high school here that part of the reason they're a powerhouse is they give you gym credit for going out for a sport. So you don't have to take FIAD. And so they just get droves of kids who go out for sport. I like and that. then you, you're, you're about to go to state for a, a school sponsored sport and <laughs> they're going to fail you if you prioritize that. <laughs> well, it, I guess, you know, that's the way it rolls, but she was the very person who voted me in as being like the physical education award. And I felt kind of bad afterwards about putting up a fight. Over so what'd you do? I ran well. I ran 158 and a half and went to state in the open. And then we set the school record in the four by eight. After walking 18 holes? Yeah. I had a great, I had a great day. You had to carry your own bag? I had to carry your own. No, I think, I think I crafted like a cart. Push, nice. push deal. Yeah. But anyways, um, why don't you introduce the topic of today, Bracken? Um, I like where you're going with this. You asked me what my, my takeaways were from the race. And I saved the last one with the most important one, which is something that Mick touched upon as well in the, our last interview was the power of creating race-specific workouts leading up to big races. And we like to talk about general fitness and periodization and all of that, but we haven't really got into the opposite, which is doing something that's super far end of the spectrum, really pointed towards one specific purpose, which generally arrives at the end of a periodization schedule. And that's looking at your most important race course, if there's something that just stands out for you and you analyze it to death, you look at the GPS, the distance, the terrain, the weather, 
and create a single workout or two that replicates that. And you just work on those specific skills that are going to be needed on race day. And it struck me on course, talking to people because the ultra community are chatty. Mm -hmm. We're talking with everyone, especially you're a couple hours in and everyone's kind of reduced to the same power hiking speed. So there's, there's conversation going on. And it was a huge difference between the people who had done specific work at that grade and lap based workouts versus people who had never seen anything like this. And, and Ross's body held up pretty well and mine held up well. And Mick was talking about his Montana experience and it all just kind of came together on that nine hour drive home, thinking about the power of teaching to the test sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mick outlined that really well in the interview. He really undersold his level of, um, thought he puts into his training. Mm -hmm. He really, really undersold it and we had to pry it out of him, but it really brought it to light, I think, um, especially somebody who really has the odds stacked against him and then goes races well in places he shouldn't. And mm -hmm. if you look at every single high-performing athlete, I would say, in this sport, any sport, whether it's trail running, maybe even road running, and then, of course, OCR, everybody, if you haven't run a course before, is going back on Strava and they're looking at old data from races and other people's results. They're figuring out where the climbs are, where the descents are, where the obstacle placement may be. And they're starting to formulate a plan months ahead of time to be ready to tackle every single one of the demands of a race coming up. And I think it's a place that a lot of people fall short. We, we become students of what is on the horizon at the high end, and we just take it for granted. We don't even, you don't even realize the top end elites are doing this for every single race, but they are. It's all part of everybody's process. So mm -hmm. I think it's super important to talk about um, Especially because, as we outlined last week, like races seem far off and we're still kind of stuck in these off-season doldrums, but like kind of, you know, grease the groove with those sort of crafts right now and it's going to set yeah. you up for success later. Yeah, and there's two concepts of this that I think are, or three, I guess, three components of why I like doing this that kind of come together on a race day. And the first is just the mental prep that it gives you. When you arrive knowing that you prepared for the very specific challenge you're about to have, you just have a, a heightened sense of confidence that you're going to be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, like Ross and I, with our first ski hill workout, when we hit that steep 30% grade, we realized we would be in trouble if it were race day right now. Mm -hmm. Even if we were fit enough for six hours of running, we were not fit enough for six hours of climbing and descending. And so that mental just reassurance that I've prepared right for this course, not for fitness, I've compared for this course's fitness. And then the second part is the actual skill work. We've talked a lot that the skill work you put in allows you to access your real fitness. And so that's huge, being able to identify what skills I need on course so that I can actually use my fitness. And then that final piece kind of plays off that, but it's course-specific fitness. You have people that are fantastic hill runners, but if you get them on a specific grade that they haven't touched, their fitness doesn't translate as well. I'm mm -hmm. certainly one of those people. Or descenders, fantastic fire road descenders aren't always great technical terrain descenders and vice versa. And so th those three pieces, the course specific fitness, the skill work, and then the mental reassurance that you've done it right are, are the keys for why I, I believe so strongly in race specific workouts. Well, and I would add a fourth thing to that too. I would add, uh, we talk about this with OCR, compromised run work, and outside of all the potential physiological benefits and what it does for your fitness, which, you know, the, the verdict's still out there. So to, as far as science goes, but the one thing that I can come back to is OCR work allows you to know how that feels. And so mm -hmm. then you're prepared for that feeling during a race of being compromised and still having to try to run fast and doing course specific work to prep. will at least let's say it's a course with a lot of short, cl steep climbs and descents. Well, if you practice that, at least you're going to know what it's like to crest a hill out of breath and push through the next downhill and rinse and repeat. So that feeling is familiar to you. And when that feeling is familiar to you, it actually allows you to sink your teeth into it versus mm -hmm. shy away from it or back the throttle off. So I would add a fourth thing and just the knowing how it's going to feel category. Yeah, absolutely. And and this this hit me for the first, not the first time, but it hit me again when I moved to Colorado and I had an abundance of mountains to climb. And I could climb for, I mean, if I went to Pikes Peak, I could climb for three hours without going downhill if I wanted to. Mm. And you get lulled into doing that. Some of the time, having a perfect training ground makes you forget about skill work. 
because I knew my climbing fitness was so good. I got to the first race where I had to climb and descend and climb again and descend. And I realized I was really good at climbing for a while and then descending for a while. But that back and forth skill and course specific fitness, it wasn't there. I'm actually curious about that. I want to sink my teeth in that real quick. Okay. So with that, you were a beast. Your fitness when you were living out in Colorado is fantastic. You were probably the best shape you've been in recent years. Um, it was still exposed in a race where you had to go up, down, up, down. It it didn't allow you to access your fitness the way you wanted. Yeah. I was better at it than I would have been without, but I didn't as the the day went, it was Pennsylvania. It was the Palmerton race. Mm. Uh, this was a race I rewatched this past week and prior to uh, on a spin bike session prior to the ultra. And it brought it home again. Um, at, in, in that race, we climbed up for probably 12 or 15 minutes to the top of the mountain, ran down a little bit, ran back, grabbed the double sandbag, went down and up through the spear throw and descended. And I was in good position through the top, moved up through the double sandbag. A bunch of people missed. Hobie or Atkins, then Hobie, then me. We're the first three to make our spears. So we had Cody, Killian, people behind us. Mm. And we descended and I passed Hobie on the descent because I had been descending in Colorado and my fitness was high. And I closed on Atkins and I got to the bottom and I remember coming around the corner and my brother and Ryan Kent were both not racing and were standing there. And they're like, Atkins is like 15 seconds up. And I could see him and I'm, I'm closing. I'm like, I'm going to win this one, guys. And we got to the next climb and down up and my, my race was done. Your body just wouldn't respond. I had three hour fitness. I didn't have three hours of continual up down. Had we just kept descending the whole way down, I would have been fine for 90 minutes of that descent. But I wasn't prepared to climb again after a hard descent because I'd been doing mountain work up and then mountain work down and then get my car and go home. I figured that's where this uh, question was going to lead us. And I think you outlined just in that one example perfectly exactly what we're talking about today. So I'm, 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 I'm not shocked at all because the same thing will happen here. I have access to the at most about a 200, 220 foot vert hill. And I find when we get on a course where we can rip her up and down a little bit and we practice that infamous shoots and ladders workout where we can mm -hmm. go up down. Um, I seem to handle that a little bit better. And as soon as we get to that sustained stuff, uh, it's a little bit different ball game. So um, you're, uh, you're speaking the language. I like it. Yeah. So it happened there in negative ways and it happened positive ways in other ways. Mm -hmm. The first time I prepared for Killington, I did the Midwest style. I didn't have a climb longer than two minutes, but I went up and down that thing so many times and I dragged tires up and down and weight plates up and down. And I carried medicine balls over my head up and down, just anything I could do to make it feel like a longer climb. Mm -hmm. And on race day, I got beat bad on the first climb and descent. And then I made up ground on the second. And by like the fifth climb and descent, I was really starting to rip up and people were fading. And it was the opposite on the spectrum where yeah. at that time I was in shape to go up and down all day long. I would lose some ground at the end of the long ones, but then I was ready for the next one. Hmm. All right. I like that. So if we're going to talk more specifics here, here then, which I think is kind of important in this type of uh, yeah. subject, because the theory of it makes sense, right? You're going to work potentially skills and terrain that is coming up in a race. Duh. Now, Again, most people don't do that for some reason. I mean, I know I should do my hill work, so I do my hill work. I know I should do some flat speed. I do my flat speed, but uh, dialing in more than that, we're talking. Yeah. So where do you start that then? How do you, let's go right to the beginning. You have a race coming up and it doesn't matter what it is. Where, where do you start? How do you break down the course? GPS files immediately. Where do you go? Do you go Strava? I go Strava. I'll go uh, Reddit has them a lot of times. Reddit has a an OCR community. And it's a lot of the open and age group athletes and they're sharing course maps from previous years and they have people's GPS files. Uh, back in the day, those weren't things. And so I looked at um, any mountain bike map I could find of Killington or I looked at skiing profile of Killington. And there are, if you got to learn how to read a topographical map, you know, you look at different things. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different resources for finding it. If you're about to race on a ski hill, all the ski websites lift they list the distance of each run. They list yep. the, the the vert of each run. And so you can, you can piecemeal things together. Nowadays, it's easy. Everyone makes segments for every Spartan race and you can find it all on Strava. So you look at what Mick did, you know, he, he had Montana coming up and he looked at the course profile from previous years. And he analyzed that first, first thing I realized is it's pretty steep, but there's no climb longer than two minutes in the race I'm about to do. 
So that was that was framework number one. He analyzed the GPS and he saw that. I'd wondered about that because I've never raced Montana. Is that actually a true statement? The climbs are very short there. Yeah. Now on the backside of the course, when you do the beast, you can have some four to six minute climbs, but that's about it. Hmm. It's not a Breckenridge or a Tahoe where you can go for 20 or 30 minutes. And the super and the sprint, um, I think the longest climb I did was three or four minutes in the sprint. And that was bottom to top. And then after that, the longest was probably 90 seconds. Hmm. Okay. That Maybe curiosity minutes. since I haven't been there, but uh, sorry to interrupt. Continue. Oh, that's, that's great. And that's, and that's exactly like the kind of question you would ask, is that really it? And then you would go on to Strava or wherever, find a buddy who raced the course and look at their GPS mm. and you can see the length of every type of climb they have out there. And you can go and watch old race videos. That's what I did for Killington too. Took a look at all the race videos I could find or mountain bike cams to see what does the actual terrain look like? Is it rocky? Is it grassy? Are they on road, off road? And then you you start coming up with those pieces. What's the weather going to be like? What mm -hmm. is the duration of the race going to be like? And now you have all the ingredients to the race and you start arranging them into specific workouts. I guess a question I didn't ask that I should have asked already is how far out do we need to be starting to, to turn our wheels this way? Um, how, how far before a race would it really make sense to go into specific work? I really like to do it at least six weeks out. At minimum. At minimum or at best, depending on the race. The shorter the race, I think six weeks is a great amount of time. You can get four weeks of really great specific skill work and then rest up for the race. But it's predicated upon already having fitness. So if I had my perfect world, which I did for Killington that year, I, I put 26 weeks of training for that race. I did a 13-week or a, maybe a 16 or 18-week block of general preparatory fitness. And then I took what I learned from that block, shortened it down to whatever was left, 12 weeks or 10 weeks, and repeated the block with race-specific workouts now. So I already had my big fitness built, and now I sharpened it mm -hmm. and translated it to Killington Fitness. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. If, if you're talking like a clean slate and you're restarting to build your fitness and you have a race six weeks out, probably just getting your general fitness up, maybe a little specifics are in there, but we're talking to you if you're already prepared and laying a foundation. So what I want to do here is actually, if you're cool with it, of course, is walk through like the three course types, no matter what you're doing. If you're a road racer, trail racer, or an OCR athlete, flat and fast. Okay. Then we're talking um, up and down, up and down, up and down. And then we're talking the long grindy stuff. Okay. Right. Where you might have one climb in a race. So let's start with flat and fast. What do you, where does your thought process start with that? If it's flat and fast, the first thing I look at then are two things. The first is terrain. What is the terrain like? Is it road? Is it grass? Is it technical? Because flat technical is not the same preparation as road. So I decide when I get to this, like we have our general fitness block and then we have our specific race block. So when I get to the specific block, at that point, all my speed work, all my threshold work, all my long runs, those key workouts of each week start being done on the race terrain I'm about to hit. Okay. So that ankles, knees, hips, proprioception, cadence, fitness, it's all dialed into what's actually going to be needed on race day. So I start with terrain. Okay. And that would be, let's say at least minimum six weeks out. Again, you're going to yep. race specific terrain. And let's say before that, let's say it's a flat and fast race. Uh, you still would be doing some track work and road work before that speed wise, but then you would transition to the terrain type and you would probably ditch the track and road work, or would you keep some of that in there? Uh, the flatter and faster it is, the more I keep that in there, but it, it determines what my, my, if I have the the foresight to know that this race is coming up it dictates what i do in the block prior so if it's flat and fast my block prior is going to be strength running it's going to have a lot of threshold work maybe a lot of 10k base speed that that speed extension that's staying power running so that i can sharpen down to race distance okay and i like to just throw these questions at you because <laughs> then it just puts the pressure on you and i can just play cleanup which is great something We're switch I, around well, that's fine that's fine um so the next one that's fine something that comes to mind right away with this then and I, i'm posing another question to you is um, what i'm getting at is so the problem that we run into often mm -hmm. is for example sometimes races are three weeks apart and we have a flat and fast race and then we have a mountain race and they're less than a month separated do you believe that you can layer it all in and make it all work to the best of your ability or do you need to 
I don't know, split your time and just take, uh, accept the fact that you're going to perform at 90, 95% of your potential. I mean, I don't think you can do it well. You don't. I think you can do it fairly well. You look at people who do that, who race a lot and are successful at it all. And it generally stems from a really great base of fitness and a lot of time spent racing. The more you go through these cycles, the less you have to spend six weeks on a skill. Correct. And so you look at an Atkins who can sharpen up in two or three weeks for a specific race because he's got a lifetime of preparing for these style of races. And the greater your fitness is, the quicker it translates. You know, I remember when I first started doing incline work, I realized Tahoe was um, on the horizon. It was 2016 when I entered the sport and I hadn't run a hill ever. And whatever work I had done, I felt like, man, barely even helped, if at all, by the time Tahoe had gotten there. It took me forever to sort of develop some confidence there. And then in 2017, when I started working at the next season, it came around, but it wasn't as fast as I wanted it to. But I kept putting in the time and putting in the time. But now in 2019 or 2020, I can get back to it in a six-week block would be enough to go and climb very well. Whereas six mm-hmm. weeks before, because I hadn't you know, made my deposits in the climbing bank yet, or enough of them, took a, lo- a long time. So I've experienced exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's why we always recommend not leaving any piece out, even in off season. Mm-hmm. That's why I keep fast little repeats in my off season blocks. And I keep hill work and long run year round, because if you keep that groove greased, it comes back quicker. And then each cycle allows you to do it better. But then, then, then you can start breaking it down a little trickier. You know, be, you start playing mad scientist with it. Let's say you have races three weeks apart or one every month. You can start playing with how you prioritize your workouts. So let's say you're repeating kind of the same block of training several times because you're sustaining your fitness throughout a several month season. You can do whatever race you're leading up to. You can do your sharp interval work with that specific race in mind, and you can do your threshold work with the next race in mind. And so if you're preparing for short and fast, your threshold work can be hill work and your speed work is flat and race specific. And now you get to the next block of training, you've already laid the foundation with your hilly threshold and it's a mountain race. Now you, if next on the horizon is a long marathon, your threshold becomes flat and long and your speed work becomes up and down steep mountain work. And so you kind of plant the seed for the next block in the midst of your current block. And that takes more tinkering and finding out what you really work well with. And it might take a year to figure it out and you might nail it your first block. That's beautifully outlined, actually. Layering in your next skill required for your following race, beginning that process with threshold work while sharpening with shorter specific work for your current race coming up. And that way, as soon as that one race is done and now your focus is on the next, bam, you go right into that quality work and you're set up to do that with, I don't know, purpose and get the most out of it. So I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, that's, Real that's quick. And I think it works because you and I both believe the same thing, which is that engines engine, mm-hmm. whether you're doing VO2 max work uphill or flat, it's working the same system of your body. It then just has to be paired to the skill of using it on your terrain. Yep. And we know hill work translates to speed once you pair it with speed work. And so that's why that works. But again, we have to remember that you'll not be 100% perfect for either one of those races, but you can probably be 90 to 95 for both. You know, and side note in what we do, like with OCR, trail running, um, not as much as with road running, but um, the hill work always translates because hill work is, you know, strength work in disguise. It's stay power when terrain and obstacles and features break up your your running and so that's going to be in no matter what i feel like even if i knew i was racing flat the entire year at least once a week i'm going to go find some vert regardless to what it because it's so beneficial to your flat running as a side note so then the next thing with this flat and fast course okay terrain i agree couldn't agree more look at terrain if you know it's going to be roughly flat and fast and strava's already told you that and it's a well-known fact like jacksonville let's say then what's the next thing that you break down about the course? So we know the terrain. It's going to be muddy and shitty. Let's use Jacksonville, for example. Okay. Okay. What's next? Then I look at how long do I have to be fast for? How fast do I have to be and how long do I have to maintain it for? Okay, great. Easy enough. If you look at Jacksonville in the past, it would have been five to eight miles and now it's three to four miles. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you realize, all right, I need to have, and you always err on the side of, of more. So you realize I need to be good for four to five miles. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
X pace on this sort of terrain. You look back again, GPS files, you see, all right, Atkins was running five flat to 520 on after every obstacle on the flats. Or you look back at a Jacksonville trail race, let's call it, if it's not OCR athlete that we're talking to, and you realize, all right, for this 10K that we're preparing for, it's twisty trails, but the winner averaged 610 pace throughout this. So I know that if I want to be able to compete with what they did last year, that's the pace I have to be able to hit for this amount of duration. And then you start dialing up workouts that work on that system for that duration. Okay. So let's continue down this rabbit hole of, of Jacksonville. Let's say it's roughly a 30 minute race for the top 20 guys, which I mm -hmm. believe it was. And we all had an idea it would be, you know, in that realm. What does that mean for your quality work? Then let's just use this as an example, a 30 minute race versus a 60 minute race. How does that change like the specifics of your quality work? So because I'm a track and roadrunner background, I look at everything from the equivalent duration if I were doing so. So 30 minutes, I say that's 10K. So I need 10K endurance. But in trail running and OCR running, I feel like our paces are all shifted down one. Mm -hmm. So we may be running 10K effort, but we're or 10K pace, but it's taking 5K effort to be able to hit that. Yep. So I know now, all right, I need the duration and strength of a 10K runner, but I need the speed and grid of a 5K runner. So now I start dialing in, those are the paces I'm targeting for or the or the efforts if you're going off perceived effort since you're going off road these are the paces and efforts i'm targeting for this sharpening block leading up to the race now do you run under the belief like okay it's a 30 minute race so i need to accumulate 30 minutes of quality work during my sessions it's a 60 minute race i need to accumulate 60 minutes of quality work during some of my sessions or do you believe that shorter duration higher intensity is the ticket or a mix of both I use a mix of both. I think that the backbone of OCR racing and trail racing is your anaerobic threshold. And it's shown that 30 to 40 minutes in that range of work in that zone gives you great bang for your buck for a race. Mm -hmm. So for a 30 to 60 minute race, I'm still doing 30 to 40 minutes worth of cruise intervals, tempo, or whatever it's going to be leading up to it. I'm adding in some staying power long runs that are a bit longer than that. And I might be doing 10 to 15 minutes work of sharp stuff as we get very close. 15 minutes worth of work won't translate to my staying power for 60 minutes of race on paper, but it certainly balances out the equation really well and gets people ready to race. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I approach it. I look at what system I'm using and what's the optimal, based on what science has shown us, the optimal amount of time to spend at that system in a race. I don't look like I need to do 60 minutes of intervals because I have a 60 minute race, but I might do a race sim day where I do an OCR tempo or something like that, that's going to be an hour long because I have to know what that feels like. Yeah. I like, I, I still keep my threshold and tempo work 30 to 50, maybe 60 minutes, depending on what's coming up, but just curious to your thoughts there. And then obviously is the, the race approaches uh, shorten the duration, increase the intensity, and you don't need to go race duration with the time and quality effort for your workout. Not at all. And then the last layer here would be now we know, okay, we know the terrain, we know the time we have to be on feet. So we're now we've tailored all our workouts around that. And now we have the obstacle thing. And the old obstacle thing, if you're uh, an OCR athlete, I feel like it's gotten more and more brushed aside a little bit. Like they're mm -hmm. taken for granted a little bit. Like we don't even factor those into Jacksonville. But yet, as we've spoken about before, the reason Ryan Atkins won Jacksonville is because of the obstacle. In a race in which we didn't think it would matter. I believe that is the reason why he gapped. That is the reason why mm -hmm. he won. So obviously he was a tactician there as well. So you see the obstacles now. Or you know what's upcoming, right? And you know it's flat. What do you? How do you tweak your training that way? Same kind of thing. I start with that general preparatory base where I'm working on an obstacle skill, and then I identify my simulator workouts and my compromise workouts that I'm going to have throughout my training to supplement my engine I'm building. Now I pair it to course-specific fitness, and so I generally have an OCR simulator a race simulator for every race I'm going to do if I'm having a big buildup. And I hit it at the beginning, middle, and end minimum of my race build. So I run Jacksonville, my version of it, in week one. What, what, would, be an, what would be an example of that? So an example of that would be a three to five mile simulated race where I might do, uh, let's say, I don't know, eight by 800 meters and every and scattered throughout that are obstacle simulations, maybe 20 fast, like speed lunges or 15 burpees or a spear throw and a 200 meter heavy sandbag carry sprinkled throughout there 
at regulated distances so that I'm doing basically a, a time trial of my own obstacle course designed to mimic the needs of the race. And then a time trial throughout my block. And then I have a few workouts that is basically that simulator broken down into interval work. So I hit it faster than simulator effort in a faster than simulator pace with recovery in between to get better at that skill of doing it well. Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And I like that. I, I think that's, I don't know, practice what you preach around here. And if that means time trialing and going back to those workouts, I think it's super important. Um, I think the key with like the flat fast stuff, even if it's a super, even a beast, honestly, at the top level is you got to really practice into and out of obstacle running and you got to keep it quick and you got to practice not catching your breath, getting back to cadence and doing that right away. The The mountain races and the longer grindy stuff, sometimes it's, you know, fitness is going to win uh, no matter what it's going to show through. But I feel like in these shorter ones, that tactical stuff and practicing that skill of in and out fast is super important. So let's move yeah. to the next thing then. Potentially, I don't know why we've got stuck on this, but potentially the first race of the year where fingers are just crossed that somehow the stars align and we're in Montana for the first yep. U.S. National Series race in May. That's, uh, as we just spoke about, an up and down, up and down, up and down, how many times race? Yep. Let's flip it around then. What's the first thing you do? Well, well, I mean, we're, we're going to kind of just start beating the dead horse here, but it's important to outline. And, mm -hmm. and the biggest thing there is going to be able to climb intensely, crest, and get back into work on your descent not take the descent to recover. If you're planning to do well in a race that's up, down, up, down, up, down. I know the first few I did, I just kind of sucked wind on the descent and recovered. It negated my ability to descend, which I feel like I'm a good one, but I couldn't because I wasn't prepared for that. So uh, the step one is going to be fine. Luckily, we have access to things like that here in the Midwest is that same deal. And whether you're going to find a three minute climb and you're going to tempo it for 40 minutes, at a sustained effort, if you're going to start the base building phase, uh, getting race specific, but keeping that threshold work in, I would start with that. I would start with tempo work on the local ski hill on anything that you can find. I would actually really emphasize the downhills during this phase and get that eccentric loading front loaded into your training. And then I would slowly graduate that or um, periodize that down into your shoots and ladders, which would be intense up, down, up or something like that with more rest to get faster and higher quality. And ideally, you know, here, if I got to be stuck on cement because it's winter and we can't get on the ski hills, fine. I'll, I'll go to Stillwater, which goes down into the St. Croix River, and I will go up and down the cement if I have to just to get that stimulus, but otherwise get on the terrain type. The other option that I like to do for the up-down, up-down races, which you've pushed on me and I like, is I might go, I may go five minutes at 30% on my incline trainer, keep my patio door open hop right out the door and go into a five minute threshold effort on flat terrain outside, recover for a couple minutes by jogging, go right back into an incline into flat. It's not the same as incline into uh, descending, but it's as close as you can get if you don't have it or going yeah. into a strength move. So I, so I would layer that stuff in and just this, the core principles again, I would, I would simulate it, but I would, I would start with threshold work and then I would go into that, that harder, shorter bouts. Yeah, and, and I like that you said you would prioritize hill work, downhill work early. hundred percent. Because up uphill is a it's just a function of power, mm -hmm. cardiovascular capability. And you can't fake it uphill, but you can fake it downhill. Like gravity and mm -hmm. incline keeps you from faking it uphill, but downhill you can run down fast with no skill and no efficiency, and then you're done. Mm -hmm. Like you and I and someone off the street might tie on our first downhill interval, but they can't do another one at that pace. And they're on the ground by the third, but because we've practiced it, we have an efficiency there. So initially it's about getting fast at running downhill and absorbing the pounding. Correct. And then over time, it's about getting really efficient at doing it. So now you can actually have some semblance of recovery and regeneration from the uphill while being fast downhill. And then you start getting into the nuances of racing where it's not just get to the top, bomb to the bottom. And now I'm just like my heart rate skyrocketed and I, my breathing's going and I have a side cramp and I didn't recover at all. But six weeks later, you can hit that same pace on the descent and be 20% more recovered. And now you're ready to do it again. And so that layers in over time, building up not just the resistance, but also the efficiency at doing it. Yeah. Anybody who hasn't descended a lot and then goes to their first mountain race and they go up and they're like, oh, I'm feeling pretty good. I go up great. And then I go down first and I feel pretty good. And then they go to make their next climb and they're like, oh, shit. 
where did my legs go? And then the race mm-hmm. slowly falls apart, which has happened to me in the beginning. Um, so I may even, I may even, you know, go what I would say smooth and relaxed on the way up in my first tempo and then drive into the descents early because you want to front load that eccentric fatigue. You don't want to be doing too much of that close to the race. So I couldn't agree more. It's all about handling that and then being able to get back to a workable rate going up. Um, I feel like it's been trendy lately to like focus on the descents because it's been glorified by guys like Johnny Luna Lima and Ryan Atkins. Mm -hmm. But I think it's been undersold in the past as to how important it is to then climbing again after you're descending and minimizing damage. So I think it should be a big focus of everybody who believes their mountain running, even uphill running could be improved. Like work on your downhill running as well and get acclimated to that. And it's going to improve your uphill. I failed in this in the past. For a while, I was very good at it. And then I had my first injury bout. I came back and my comeback race, I don't know if you remember, (laughs) comeback was a misnomer, was West Virginia. It Mm -hmm. was that year that Mick came down and it was Mick and Ian Hosick and Jesse Bruce and a couple of us were all in a pack and Cody, Killian, Atkins were out ahead of us, Woods. And we were the chase pack. And we got to the top of that first climb and we started going down and they're all good technical runners. Mm -hmm. But I thought like, I'm going to let them know that there are levels to technical running. And I fancy myself a technical descender. And I blasted past all those guys. Mm-hmm. And Ian Hosick even like whooped on the way by. He's like, "Ah, get after it, Bracken!" And I thought, like, <laughs> "Yep, they all know now." And I got to the bottom and I turned up, and my quads were shot. Right. And I had been doing shoots and ladders all summer, but I had done the original version of shoots and ladders, which is hard up, hard down, three to four minutes slow jog, do it again. And I got really good at cresting and bombing down, but the three to four minutes of a recovery in between meant that I never hit the next climb compromised. Mm -hmm. And that race, I spent the rest of it thinking, I've made a terrible mistake in training. And the moment I'm done with this, Shoots and Ladders 2.0 is coming out. (laughs) You know what's funny about that is, so that's a workout you assigned when we first started working together. And to this date, it's still probably my most dreaded workout because as my heart rate data will show you, it's probably that provokes the biggest response out of me for some reason. Hmm. And... And I noticed then I went to a race. I think I went to Palmerton for the first time. And I noticed like that climb after that first descent, I was like, fuck, I'm like, I'm just not in control of my effort anymore. I am already a slave to what the situation is. And so I went and started doing that up, down, up, Mm -hmm. sometimes down again. And it made a huge, huge, huge difference. It's so true, man. Like that is a great workout. Uh, I think adding in either starting on top and descending, climbing, descending, or even doing two full loops of up, down, up, down is totally the key with that one. So I bet you're, is that what you went to then? Absolutely. Then I started doing up, down, up, rep number one, recover at the top, down, up, down. So I got, I was always alternating and getting both stimulus down and, and it, it highlighted the importance of running the workouts you assign. Oftentimes things get put on the back burner and you get in a pattern of assigning training blocks that you haven't felt in a while. And if the demands of the race change and you haven't felt those demands and then you haven't tested it in workouts, it becomes kind of difficult to program accurately. So it's just a, I guess a PSA, a reminder to anyone writing programming for themselves or for others that make sure you don't assign a workout that you haven't tested and that even if you're not a racer, you get out there and you run some of these courses to make sure you feel exactly what's translating and what's not because we all get caught up in it in our patterns and and sometimes the needs change and the only way you know that is if you actually feel that change Mm -hmm. but anybody that that's run up down up down races knows like just how painful it is you crest the the, you crest the steep grade and your legs are gone and your lungs are gone and somehow you gotta drive into the top and create momentum going down and I think that's one of the hardest race styles, honestly, as far as like overall effort, you can get into a long climb and you can kind of grind and get settled in a little bit. And yeah, it's hard. Don't get me wrong. But something about that changing of tempo is just mm-hmm. is something that needs to be worked. And then uh, the last thing then would be, obviously, we talked train type. We don't need to beat that anymore. We've talked looking at the elevation profile. So now we know how long up down reps we should choose. And then the last thing is the obstacle factor. Um, and this is the one where I think Typically in these up, down, up, down races, they're going to give you the carries on steep grades where they Mm -hmm. can use that to their advantage. 
And what I noticed, for example, with that is a lot of these are going to force you to get under your toes. It's going to be super steep and your calves are going to completely go on you if you haven't trained a steep grade uh, under the uh, under a heavy load. So getting ahead on that stuff, too, and just putting in time, even if you have a 30 meter steep hill at your access and that's all you have, you got to work that stuff because I've seen that blow open races, something as simple as, as that. So getting your carries on that terrain type and then really practicing something that you t- I've learned working out with you on our big ski hill days is the efficiency of going downhill fast with a carry working that technique. Again, I'd say make your focus on the downhill as much or more as the uphill. So much time with less effort can be made up on the downhill. The way you skip and trot down the hill with a bucket, for example, or mm-hmm. the sandbags. I don't even know what you call, call that leg motion. Is there a name for it? I don't know. It's almost like galloping or something. I'm not sure. Galloping. But anyway, so so hit that stuff because that could be one another element that would just blow your race wide open in, in a good or bad way. I'm glad you brought it up. I didn't have it on my points to hit, but this goes back to your knowing what it feels like. A lot of times we do our carry workouts as carry workouts and we get used to knowing what heavyweight feels and grinding up this this terrain, but we don't often start our carry already so exhausted that we don't want to carry mm-hmm. usually by our last rep it's like man this is getting tough but in a race sometimes you arrive to a carry and your legs are already on their way out yep. and so this is where that mikhail style workout and you and i have done workouts where we just run endless hill repeats and then carry but we're mixed style of doing 40 step ups per leg to the point where your quads start quivering a little bit then you do your hill work Mm-hmm. So getting like endless jump squats or or jumping split lunges or heavy step ups. And as soon as you get to the point where my legs are quivering, like I got to the top of a 500 foot climb. Now I put two sandbags on my shoulder and I start hiking uphill where from step number one, I don't want to be moving. And I, I'm not sure if I can keep the sandbags on my shoulder. And if I drop them, I don't know if I can get them back up. Yeah. Those are the quality reps you have to hit. So that on race day, like you said, I, at least I felt this. And I know it's not going to break. And I have a strategy for for picking them back up. We, we've seen it many times at World Championships. Guys who are good at double sandbag carries, but have never been trashed to the point where they had to pick it back up six times. Mm-hmm. And they don't even have a technique for getting it back onto their shoulders. And you only get that technique if you've been trashed. Anyone can get the sandbags up when they're competent and coherent. Mm-hmm. But when your arms and arm legs are gone, there's a certain style that you'll figure out for how to even continue moving. And you have to hit that in training. Yeah. Style I like to do. Uh, I started doing this a little bit before I got injured, um, has nothing to do with my injury, but, uh, just hitting like, um, like a 15 to 20 minute up down tempo and then going into a 30 minute folks. So you're already, you're working up down, let's say a two minute hill. And then you take 30 minute block where all you do is carry up down, run up down carry up, down, run up, down. And you, you already have some fatigue in those legs. And then you do like a half hour specific where all you're doing is time under tension with a climb and descent in between. And then you go on the backside and do another 15 minutes of like purposeful running. Uh, so really you're accumulating an hour or so of like harder effort. Um, but it just sandwiches with those carries and it teaches you to kind of run fatigued. And I, I feel like that one is translated. In fact, my carries typically have felt pretty dang good, I think because of it. So, so you've been a strong carrier these, these recent years. It's been helpful. Yeah. Here's one specific exercise. I think anyone, if they're listening who are OCR specific and you're, you think you might hit a double sandbag carry this year to really drive home that feeling of what do I do when my arms are trashed? I just started this during the rebuild for TM, uh, for high rocks, just to get better at uh, lunges with weight on my back, do a farmer's carry till failure and then pick your double sandbags up and go. And that's the closest I've come to feeling like Tahoe or Killington or Palmerton, where I'm not sure if I can get these sandbags off the ground onto my shoulders. It's it's the my my best way of simulating that. I think the one underrated carry is 35, if you're a male, 35 or 45 pound dumbbells or, or a plate up and down a ski hill is the most bang for your buck that translates to sandbags, buckets, anything you want. The stress that puts on your body core arms traps it's fantastic so one that people don't do they have the sandbag they have the bucket they do a great job using those two but i think the the most underutilized tool is that farmer's carry up and down yep and the the double sandbag putting your arms up above your head and locking in and everyone does it and says all right i'm not dropping these things and oftentimes it's your shoulders and arms it's always require you to put it down it's not your back and so to do your farmer's carry first 
and blow out your shoulders, your traps, your grip. And now you have to practice keeping your hands up there when they don't want to be up in the air any longer. Nope, exactly. Yeah, I love that one. And then let's let's transition to the last. I mean, we're we're gonna make this one pretty brief, but you'll get you got the gist already, I think, people. But uh, the Long Tahoes of the world, maybe the Killingtons of the world, uh, any of those longer, the Utahs. Um, anything you change there? I think that the less the terrain changes, or the longer the duration in between, the more threshold work is important. That. When we're doing the Montana or the Jacksonville, where we're always going up and down or always accelerating, that interval work and high-intensity circuits really are great bang for your buck. But when you're not really spiking, you're just always grinding, that that's tempo work. I agree. All day long. And so a lot of times, that's something that I will approach from a speed base and move into staying power in my six-week sharpening. I'm sharpening towards being the best anaerobic threshold rather than spiking way over anaerobic. I want to be able to just ride a certain work all day long. And then of course you do it on race terrain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Confession on my end is, and it panned out somewhat is you, you know, I don't think I did a compromised run workout the last five or six weeks leading into Tahoe, for example, because I felt it was more important to get very good at steady work going up and down on feet than it was on transition work. And I think it was the absolute right move. So I agree with you on the fact that that compromise work, the longer the race, the less important it becomes. I do think I kept my strength work up. So like I was able to handle those stressors, of course, but I agree. Then I think you shift a little bit more to threshold work. Like you had mentioned, I do think, you know, some of these climbs are long getting you, if you don't have access to mountains, like I really, really enjoy your 60 minute max vert. Uh, test. I did that three weeks out from Tahoe and I believe it really paid off 60 minutes of grinding up, uh, practicing the long descents, however you can get them in. But it, it really is. It's all about threshold running. I don't think we breach threshold running much until the very end of the race or maybe coming off of an obstacle or something. Have you, have you, I've never worn a heart rate monitor in a race yet. And an OCR race. Have you? I have, but never in a big race because I don't want to know. I don't I know. want it to mess with my mind. I've worn it during stadiums because I was curious what we're hitting. And I've worn it in smaller races because I'm always curious that feeling I'm feeling, what does that correlate to? Mm-hmm. But I've never done it at a Tahoe or a Killington or anything like that because I don't want to be checking it constantly and then have that feedback mess with me one way or the other. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask if you had, and what the, what the results showed you, if you're on a long climb at Tahoe, for example, does it show you exactly what we're talking about? You're somewhere in that threshold zone four, riding through it, or if you're actually breaching it or under it, but I don't like to wear it in the race. Cause I'm afraid it's going to fall off or I'm going to lose it, or it's going to like, it just doesn't seem worth it to me. I've had so many races where I intended to, mm-hmm. and then I warm it up and I'm like, screw it. I'm not going to mess with my chest strap today. Right. Or I don't want to have to cinch my watch down on my wrist. I intended to do it, but no, you know what? No, I'm in race mode. I'm not doing it. Even though I really wanted the data in for coaching purposes and training purposes, but it came down to it. The race in that moment, it won out. Yeah. I'm the same way. You see Atkins and VJ Jones wearing them almost, almost every race now, but my Velcro, I just feel like after you wear that thing for long enough, I, I would just nick it on something and it'd be in the woods. And then what do you do? When it gets really wet, it comes off. Mm-hmm. You get those big Which I found out during an OCR sim. I had a swim put in there preparing for West Virginia and my strap came undone in the lake. It did. Well, that Wahoo ticker fit is fantastic. I think maybe a customized, vel- some sort of strap would be actually super beneficial for that because then you wouldn't have to worry about it. And I would yeah. like that data. Um, but yeah, I think you honed in longer intervals. Instead of the short stuff, uh, threshold work. I don't know if there's anything else other than time under tension. As far as those carries go again, like getting them a little longer. This is where I yeah. utilize the inclined trainer a lot in this side of thing. Like if, if we got yes. up down races, I'm not on it as much. But for the long stuff, even if you have access to mountains. But, you know, the, the, the inclined trainer can still be a really good tool. So getting on that. And I will tell you, for those that don't have access to an inclined trainer, um, I hate to tell you, but going to the gym or using your standard treadmill that only goes to 15%, fantastic. Don't get me wrong. 100% does not prepare your body for the demands of actual climbing in a mountain that goes up to 30% greater more. It is it is different muscle engagement, different biomechanics, different core state and hip stabilization, different stress on your calves and Achilles and ankles. 
Um, you got to find a way to simulate that grade and 15% does not cut it. If you're preparing for a mountain race, I will stand by that statement through and through. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's better than nothing. But I will say that if I had to only for a real mountain, I'm talking steep 20% or above, if I could only choose one thing to prepare for it, I would choose stairs over a regular treadmill. Yeah, me too. For, for the climbing aspect. So yeah, it's frustrating, but that's, that's what we're reduced to. Mm -hmm. I'm always, if there's a mountain race coming up and I'm preparing for a long one, I'm running at 30%, typically almost always. And I'll throw in super you know, intense power hike bouts at 40% where my calves are screaming and I'm on my toes. I can't get on my heels anymore. Um, that seems to just pay off a lot more than 15% running. I do think 15% running translates really nicely to speed on flat ground and developing really good efficiency and power and in that way, but it just doesn't unfortunately translate up. Yeah. So I, I want to tie this together by, again, referring back to what happened this weekend with Ross. Ross came in having run since June. And that was the, this was his first competition since, I don't know, a decade. Wow. He was probably the, out of the people who were competitive there, he was probably the least prepared runner. And I don't think it was close, but we had decided that since we only had X amount of time to prepare, we were going to do all of our build on race specific terrain. So twice per week, we were on a hill. Once we did shorter, faster reps, and once we did longer reps or loops or threshold intervals or simulations, but we did it all on race terrain and he did great. I, he's finished. We, the results were kind of skewy because they're still, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't chip timed. It was all, you come through and someone punches your bib. And so they're still tallying everything, but he finished somewhere between third and fifth. Wow. And he was... Again, he was the least prepared runner, but he might have been one of the most prepared hill runners, just in terms of skill prep. So, and you think that great coach work that you did there, oh, getting him on all of it, he did it impeccable. But but getting on race specific terrain, you think made a sizable difference in making up that gap on people who had trained longer and maybe better and harder. It was the only way. So you believe that that was the, that was the X factor. That in his mental game, he's a gritty competitive guy and he never, he never backed away. He just used whatever he had. But the idea that he, outside of the people that lived right there and trained on that course, he'd spent, and even maybe with them, he'd spent more, a higher percentage of his training time on that grade than anyone else. And so he was able to outperform his, his, his general fitness because his race specific fitness was so was such a high percentage of his general fitness. It got him to four hours. Come to six hours. Well, it got him to four hours, and then his mental game got him to six hours, probably. Yeah, and I would argue that if it was dry, it would have got him through five, maybe six of descending hard too. That was the variable. That was the race specific fitness we hadn't built. Was muddy descending really racks your hamstrings and your quads and everything that's tight. That was that was the piece we hadn't planned for, and it was the piece that got him. Well, and, and the muddy stuff, then you're forced to go into the braking effect to yep. be a little more steady, and that just creates damage. And this goes to all you suckers out there who are um, stuck on the cement in the winter or you are gravitating towards your treadmills in the winter. This is the time when we talk race-specific. As you see snowfall and you should be thinking, yes, I'm going to go hit the trails today. This is awesome race-specific work. Mm -hmm. Not avoiding it not rolling your eyes, but getting out there and taking advantage of running in the in the shitty, non-forgiving terrain is going to be probably the right answer for you right now versus just going to the roads after the snow. No, go, slow down. Work that strength and grindy fitness. I think the snow for you Northern folks is something to take advantage of, not to be like, feel like you're cursed. It's actually a blessing in my opinion. You just gotta, your glass has to be half full, people. It does. And if, if you can run, and train in bad conditions, slippery, muddy, snowy. You can race in great conditions just fine. But if you train in great conditions, you can't necessarily race in bad conditions. They don't translate the same way. So you always have to err on the side of race specificity. Yep. Uh, one thing, this is a tangent as we wrap up here, but somebody asked me about this. And speaking of snow running, um, one, is the abominable snow race happening? And two, are you doing it? Allegedly, it's still happening. They closed registration on like the 30th already oh. for a January race. So uh, if I want to come down, I can't? Well, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep track of the COVID thing. I'm not going to a race if we're high here because it's yeah. 
it's not worth it. However, if it seems relatively safe, I'm going to try to to play that card and I'm just going to reach out to the race directors directly and say, hey, man, want, want to get Kirk and I a spot? I'm the past champion. You've got to let me slide in. That's right. I think I'm three or four time reigning. They got to let me in. I might have some fitness around by then. I don't know. We'll see. So, yes, I intend to as long as it's a smart thing to do. All right. If you're in the Midwest and look at it, the Abominable Snow Race Bracken's done. I think you get a whiskey like bottle if you win, which is my kind of, which is my kind of race. Uh, I think it's worth the travel. It seems like people have a really good time at the Abominable Snow Race, which is maybe, what, month and a half out? Yeah. So start running that snow. Get prepared for that one, guys, if you're itching to race. It's the next thing on my calendar. Cool, man. I got nothing else to add. I think it was a good one. And I hope people now hear this early enough that they can start nerding out. Start your research, start planning out your big race course, what you're going to prepare for, and then maybe start tinkering around with layering in fitness at different points of the year. Even if you add in one race-specific workout a week at this point, that's plenty to set you up for races month out, months out. So I would start there. I like it. See ya.